Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I am Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. So much to talk about this time, people, because guess what? It's Max Fun Drive. It's the one and only time all year that we ask for your support to keep doing what we do here. You see, all of the podcasts on Maximum Fun are artist-owned and audience-supported. That means when you become a member, you are directly affecting our ability to continue making this show, as well as all the other current and future shows on Max Fun. So we're very aware that it's a tricky time to be fundraising right now. There are so many causes that need our support. But... Look, if, if one of our dead pilots has ever made you laugh or made your day better, or if you've ever gotten a valuable insight from one of our creator interviews, we would love it if you would consider going to MaximumFun.org slash join to choose a monthly amount that's comfortable for you. The majority of people give $5 or $10 a month. Some upgrade to $20, $35, even $100 per month. It's really about what works for you, what you can do. So... While you're thinking about it right now, please consider going to MaximumFun.org slash join and supporting our show. Uh, we, we only do this once a year. So I'll be back after the pilot read, um, and I'll talk about some of the great things you can get for your monthly membership. On to the next order of business. We have another live stream Zoom show tomorrow, Friday, June 17th. At 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. See, this is why you need to listen to these episodes as soon as they drop. Um, so you know about these. It's going to be a truly hilarious show. The Dead Pilot is Code 5 by Ed Brubaker, Sandeep Parikh, and Mel Cowan. It's just a raunchy, laugh-out-loud buddy comedy. It's going to be read by Asif Ali, Phil Lamar, John Ross Bowie, Janet Varney, and Milana Weintraub. So those that know, know that that is a powerhouse comedy lineup. Tickets are only $6.50. All proceeds are going to benefit Color of Change, which is the nation's largest online racial justice organization. If you buy a ticket, you'll have access to the show for 48 hours. So even if you can't watch it uh, on Friday, you'll have access for, for 48 hours after that. So please go to HouseSeats.Live for your tickets. You know, it's worth mentioning that in pre-pandemic times, we would do our live shows at comedy clubs and our cut of the door would offset some of the costs of producing the show. Now that we're doing these shows on Zoom, every show is a benefit, whether that's for Color, color of Change or the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. And we're going to keep doing it that way. But, you know, that's another reason to consider going to MaximumFun.org slash join and becoming a member or upgrading your membership. Um so much to talk about. I want to just talk about Carl Reiner and just how inspiring it's been to read people's remembrances of him. Everyone should read Steve Martin's uh, piece in New York Times. You know, you can be a kind, wonderful person and a comedic genius. And, you know, we wouldn't have any of his work if it wasn't for the WPA. Um, another thing you might want to delve into. Just everyone, just search out anything you can find about Carl Reiner. Read his books, watch his movies. He was just the best. Uh... All right, let's get on to our dead pilot for this month. This was our very first Zoom reading. And as you will hear, it really works surprisingly well. The pilot is Elsewhere by Corinne Kingsbury and Noel Valdivia. Uh, Corinne's the creator of In the Dark and Fam. 
Noel has been a writer and producer on Happy and Ash vs. Evil Dead and Mozart in the Jungle, among many others. These two women are so smart and funny. You, you have to stick around uh, after the pilot read for my interview with them. Some great stories about uh, nightmare pitches. I can never get enough of those. Our cast, Kate Walsh, Tig Notaro, Martin Starr, Nicole Bloom, Ego Wodum, Craig and Carla Kakowski, Aiden Mayeri, and Humphrey Carr. Uh, all right, that's enough out of me for now. Here is Elsewhere. We begin close on a pair of filthy white bed slippers dragging along the pavement. We pull out to reveal Sean Newbuck, 35, in his pajamas, his hair matted, a glazed look on his face. He eats a large block of cheese as he ambles down the left lane of the mostly empty highway. He tosses his cheese behind him, walks to the highway's edge, and calmly throws himself off the overpass. And we cut to a mediation room. We're on Ellen Newbuck, Sean's grieving and very pregnant widow. She tries to hold it together as she sits next to Gerstein, her outmatched lawyer. It's a reasonable amount, considering she's now raising three children alone. All the money in the world can't bring Mr. Newbuck back, but maybe it'll keep that sleeping pill off the market, prevent this from happening to other families. Isn't that right, Mrs. Newbuck? Right. Ellen can't help it. She breaks down as the first tear falls like clockwork. A box of tissues is in front of her face. The tissue bearer, opposing counsel, Gray Chapman, buttoned up but still a babe, not a hair out of place as she nods in rehearsed sympathy. Of course, Mrs. Newbeck and Pfeffer Pharmaceuticals would never ask you to put a number on your husband's life. For God's sake, you were high school sweethearts graduated college together. Looking through your case history, I feel like I know you. I mean, if we met under different circumstances, we could be girlfriends, which is why I should tell you, girl to girl, you don't want to do this. Okay. I've been trying cases like this for 15 years. Here's what's going to happen. Here it goes. I told you this would happen. You refuse a reasonable settlement, your prerogative, you, you're making your point, but that means you move to trial. The judge realizes this is going to make headlines. He makes sure no stone goes unturned, meaning your bank account, your emails, your kids, nothing is off limit. We already know a few things that don't play in your favor. Your husband was taking our sleeping pill, which why is that? Is it psychological? Maybe we subpoena his medical records, STDs, erectile dysfunction, about with cocaine in the 90s. We all did it, but we're not on trial here. OK, just Sean. So maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's psychological. We put his therapist on the stand. Depression, mania. You ever been in marriage counseling? We get her in too. every fight. Any affairs? Yeah, we know about his college buddy. OK. You really dig into what may have been ailing this guy. After all, people with clean consciousness sleep fine at night. What was chewing away at Sean Newbeck? And whatever it was, was it enough to make him take his own life? Because from what where I'm sitting, I can see a pretty strong suicide case. Even if we can't get to the bottom of it, all the speculation will be there. And not just in print, but on the Internet. Searchable for your baby. I'm sorry, is it a boy or a girl? Girl. Girl, for when your baby girl is old enough to punch your daddy's name to a laptop, it'll be on all the news sites. And if for some reason it isn't, I will personally lease out a URL, www.shawnnewbuckoftimself.com and forward her the link every single day of her adolescent life. Now, Pfeffer Pharmaceuticals would never ask you to put your number, a number on your husband's life, but they do pay me too. And I think 
the number is much closer to 400,000. We're outside the office a few minutes later. Gray makes her way down the stairs triumphant. Her best friend and assistant, Kimmy, follows mm. close behind her. The sleeping pills sound kind of fun, don't they? I can snag us some. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Wait, did her husband really cheat on her? Sure. God, you're amazing. Okay, here's your phone and your passport. You're set up for international calling, and I packed your Louis bag with a week of island chic outfits labeled with Polaroids. I also sent you the confirmation from the hotel. They just need your signature. You can sign the PDF on your phone. Kimmy hands her the latest iPhone and passport. A screensaver of Gray kissing her handsome boyfriend, James, is displayed. Um, I'll do it on my way to the meeting. Oh, wait, did you, did you trick James? Oh, yep. Told him a car. We'll pick him up at six for dinner. They make their so, way into the parking lot. So he has no idea. I'm taking him to Anguilla. Oh, zero. But FYI, he's still real sad that you bailed on his sister's wedding. He managed to bring it up three times in a one minute phone call. When did guys become so emotional? Probably when Drake started rapping about his feelings. They arrive at Gray's Range Rover. Kimmy unlocks the door and opens Gray's door. Gray looks at Kimmy, a tad bit vulnerable. He has to forgive me, right? I mean, it was her second wedding. If you stabbed my mom and then jetted me off to Anguilla, I would forgive you. Plus, the dude loves you and you love him. It'll be fine. It has to be. Oh, this whole caring thing really sucks. Oh, it warms my heart to see you all insecure like this. Gray gives mm -hmm. a sarcastic smile and a big hug. I'm going to miss you so much. I'll call you constantly. I know how much you hate relaxing. Loathe. Gray climbs in the car. And don't forget to sign the confirmation. On it. Gray throws her car in reverse and she's off. We're in Gray's Range Rover a few minutes later. She's driving with one eye on the road and the other on her phone, trying to sign the document. But she needs both hands. She steers with her knee and starts to sign. We see a stop sign through her window. She blows right past it. Screech, we smash cut to a hospital room. Two doctors stand over a lifeless Gray who is covered in tubes and IVs. The only sounds are the somber beeps coming from the machines Gray is hooked up to. The mood is grim. Well, uh, I guess we should break the news to her parents. Her parents didn't show. Oh, brutal. They look down at Gray, feeling bad for this poor girl. <laughs> well, want to hit up Chipotle? No, I can't. I'm trying that paleo thing. No, they'll put the burrito in a bowl. Zero impact carbs. Oh. The doctors walk out of the room, shutting the door behind them. Suddenly, Gray jolts awake, gasping for air. Help! Someone help me! I'm alive! But no one comes. In a panic, Gray rips away the tubes and throws them on the floor. She stumbles to her feet and rushes to the door. Gray runs down the hallway looking for help. She spots a friendly nurse heading towards her, smiling. Thank God. Gray rushes to her, but just then the fluorescent lights overhead begin to dim and fizzle out. Is it a power outage? Suddenly it goes pitch black. We can only hear the sound of Gray's frantic breathing. Hello? What's going on? And on cue, a light at the end of the hall blinks to life. Gray slowly walks to it. As she approaches, the light gets brighter. And that's when she realizes she is not alone. Many other people, mostly very old, are following behind her and all around her. What? She reaches Brick, a man in his 50s at the end of the hall, holding the light. Gray puts two and two together and starts to panic. 
Yo, welcome to the afterlife. Grace face blanches. She knows what he's going to say, and she's not hearing it. No, no, no. Sorry. There's been a mistake. A huge mistake. Huge mistake. She turns on her heel and takes off in the opposite direction, speeding up, pushing elderly people out of her way. She knocks Larry, an old man, to the floor. Move it, Grandpa. Actually, I never had children. It's one of my biggest regrets. (laughs) A nearby nerdy dude who will come to know as Steve helps him up and glares after Gray. We're interior, a control center. Dozens of screens show people mingling, eating, sleeping, etc. We zero in on one screen. It's gray, running aimlessly. Gabe, 40s flamboyant, lives for gossip in a kimono, is too engrossed in an old Us Weekly with the Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston wedding story to notice gray. Rachel Green, you lucky bitch. Gabe looks up at the monitors for the first time and notices... Shit, we got a runner. Lou, doll, let's move. Lou, a high-strung perfectionist, bursts through the doors, wearing sneakers, already stretching her hammies. Download me on the runner, sir. Sir, what am I, a dinosaur? She studies Gray on the monitor, who is still running. Download me. She looks young. Oh, she looks young. What's her deal? Gabe types on a tiny computer. Gray Chapman, 35, died in a car crash, her fault... Control freak, intimacy issues rooted in childhood trauma, and oh, oh no, she's a Capricorn. <laughs> you know, I don't do well with Capricorns. They're, they're vicious. Remember when John Denver threw that tambourine at me? On the monitor, Gray at a dead end violently bangs at the wall. Shall I get biscuit? I think that's wise. We're in the hospital hallway a few minutes later. Gray cowers on the floor at the end of the hallway when she sees Lou approaching. Hi there, Gray. I'm Lou, and this little guy here is Biscuit. From behind her back, she pulls out her secret weapon, the cutest puppy ever. Biscuit runs to Gray, tripping over his giant, adorable paws. Gray makes a point not to look at him. Seriously? A puppy? That's your plan? I'm sorry. I'm dead. You think you're gonna, I'm going to be fine with it because you brought me a stupid golden retriever. Biscuit rolls onto his back, showing Gray's tummy. God damn, it's cute, but Gray stays tough. Look, I'm not staying up here, all right? I, I want to speak to the manager. You can't bargain your way out of this. That's not how this works. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm alive, okay? And I want to speak to... Can, can you just... Can you just get him to stop doing that thing? It's very distracting. Biscuit's now chasing his tail. It's getting cuter. Gray averts her gaze, but the cuteness is hard to ignore. <sighs> okay, you, you know what? I, 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 I want to speak to God. At the mention of him, Lou starts laughing. <laughs> God? <laughs> okay, that is rich. That's rich. You mean Yahweh, Allah, Zeus, <laughs> God? <laughs> Okay, and I'm going to make you a deal. You send me back like a near-death thing, and I'll tell everyone how great your religion is. I'll totally preach your gospel, unless you're a Scientologist. Or, you know what, even fine, even if you are a Scientologist. Can you just get him to stop doing that face? Biscuit is now on his hind paws, hugging Gray's leg. She squats down in front of him, screaming in his face. This isn't going to work, you prick. I sat through a Sarah McLaughlin commercial, dry-eyed, like the Sahara. Lou claps and Biscuit kisses Gray's nose, climbs on Gray's lap and curls into the cutest ball in the world. Can you please get this very soft creature off of me now? I think you're going to want to hold on to him for a sec. No. But Gray does. She clutches him tighter. 
I know it's really hard to grasp. It's almost impossible to grasp. No, please. We don't want, we don't want, we don't want to hear it. We just want to go home. She buries her face in his fur, bracing herself. Gray, you're dead. Gray tears up a little, hugs her new best friend. Wait, does, does that mean this puppy died too? Um, he drowned in a kiddie pool. So far, I don't like heaven. No, no, no. Th this is more of a holding area. We call it elsewhere. Come on, let's meet up with the rest of your group. Lou leads Gray out of the room. A few minutes later, Gray clutches Biscuit like a baby blanket as she floats down a moving walkway through Elsewhere Terminal. Sleek and futuristic, like a Tokyo airport in 2035. Lou leads the new arrivals, the same people we saw in the hallway with Gray. The rest of the group is talking over each other, asking a million questions. Hector and Claire, in their 80s, just as in love when they were 16, pipe up. Do we still have to go to the bathroom now that we're dead? I'm incontinent. Nope. I thought there'd be angels flying about. We call them counselors up here, and they don't have wings. Although your counselor, Gabe, once tried to make a pair out of glitter and maxi pads. An elderly woman speaks up. Well, I get to see my husband. He died 22 years ago. His name is Gordon Lee. That's G-O-R. Uh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. I, yeah, I know how to spell Gordon, and it depends. As Lou explains the ropes, Gray catches a glimpse of Steve, 30s and nerdy. She assumed from his dorky khakis and shirt he was another elderly. She's relieved to see someone her age. She kicks his leg to get his attention. Too hard. Oh, sorry. I was trying to get your attention. I'm trying to listen. To what? Do you have some business with this Gordon character? Didn't think so. Look, we're the youngest people here. We need to stick together. Hey, I saw you push down that old man. I admit I was freaking out, okay? But they gave me this emotional support ammo. Now I'm crushing it. I'm happy to hear it. He goes back to listening. A beat and then... So, what, was it Zika? Flint, Michigan, drinking water? Come on, how'd you die? Did what? you kill yourself? No. Oh, okay. Sorry, none of my business. AIDS? Steve looks down and notices fresh dog pee on his shoes. Hey, maybe you should focus more on your dog and less on judging others. Gray can't believe the audacity of this loser. How do you know it wasn't her? The she last time she had oh, and the last time she had control of her bladder, you were probably jerking off to that robot on Small Wonder. This conversation has been worse than dying. Nice to meet you. He turns back. Gray makes a face. Whatever. Uh, we're in an auditorium later. Gray and about 50 people are packed into this Frank Geary-esque affair with twisted steel and modern seats. Unable to read the tension in the room, Gabe, in an Ellen DeGeneres-style white suit, is working the stage like Tony Robbins, face mic and all. Since everyone has to pass through elsewhere, we've been graced with the most famous faces throughout history. And they sat in your same chairs. Gabe points to Larry. Paul Newman sat right there, sir. Everyone sits up, impressed, waiting for their turn. Bette Davis sat, sat there. Abe Lincoln there. Nice guy. Lucille Ball, what a delight. Marlon Brando. Then Gabe points to Gray's seat. DJ AM. Gray makes a face. Her seat sucks. Today sucks. It all sucks. Over the next few hours, my team and I will review your lives before sending you upstairs to Nirvana, Paradise, Zion, whatever you call it, by the way. 
all excellent band names. We don't skimp on the theatrics here. The whole process is one you'll never forget. See that? Gabe points out the window at the Hill Valley clock tower from Back to the Future. Everyone is impressed. When that clock strikes midnight, a bright light will sweep you up into the sky, carrying you gently to an eternity of bliss. Also a great band name. An intern makes his way to Gray and without a word takes Biscuit from her lap. Gray friends. Now we know how traumatic death can be, not just for you, but for the loved ones you left behind. So we decided to offer a service. You all get to go back to earth for five minutes and help give your loved one closure. The crowd cheers with excitement. Even Gray perks up. Now there is one caveat. You can see them, but you can't, they can't see you. They can usually feel your presence, so we encourage you to give them a sign to tell them you're okay. A flicker of the light, a cool breeze. Birds are very popular these days. People start chatting about who they're going to pick. A sweet elderly lady sitting next to Gray turns to her. How lovely. Are you going to go see your parents, dear? I'd rather kill myself. I also need a new catchphrase. I'm going to see my boyfriend. He is my family. Gray smiles at the thought of that, like genuinely smiles. The next moment, there's a thunderclap as Gray appears in her old living room. It's raining outside and she peers out the window. The earth weeps for me. In the doorway, her assistant Kimmy shivers, her clothing wet from the rain. She looks pale. She's been crying. She's holding a cardboard box. I should have called first, but I I packed up her personal things and I just thought that you should have them. Oh, uh, you don't have to explain. I I miss her too. You must be freezing. Uh, Go dry off. Kimmy heads off and James unpacks the box. Fashion magazines, a hairbrush, a voodoo doll, a Republican elephant figurine, a switchblade. Oh, my switchblade. James smells the hairbrush. I don't know how I'll live without her. She took care of me, bought me clothes, picked the movies we watched, the restaurants we ate in, traded in my Mini Cooper for a BMW, (laughs) moved my hair parting from the left to the right. We miss her at work too. And so many of the other firms with sent flowers and one Pokemon pinata. (laughs) I just, I don't see myself moving on. Gray is touched by their exchange. Until Kimmy emerges from the bathroom wearing a slinky slip dress. Suddenly, she's ravishing. Um, I hope you don't mind. My clothes are drying. This was on the bed. No. You, you look... Um, don't you dare. Beautiful. Oh, please. My eyes are all puffy. I've been crying all day. I can't tell. Oh, my God. Gray is pissed. It's time to make her presence felt. All right. You're sad. I get it. Time to make my presence felt. (laughs) She whips her finger in the air and points at them. The papers on the coffee table flutter as she sends her cool breeze. Kimmy and James both stop. Did you feel that? Could that be? Uh, Yeah, the nest is still busted. If Gray were here, she'd have my head for it. It's not the nest, you idiots. God. I'm freezing. Here. James grabs a cozy blanket off the couch and drapes it over her shoulders and rubs, warming her up. I'll light a fire. As James builds the fire, Gray rolls her eyes. 
It's me, you idiots. You guys, you guys are hopeless without me. Hang on. Gray rushes over to the light switch, but it's on a dimmer, so it just makes the room instantly romantic. As the fire glows, James and Kimmy lock eyes. Neither one looks away. Wow. You, um, never mind. Loss. In this light, you look like Matt Bomer. Shut up. Yeah, shut up, Kimmy. But it's too late. James and Kimmy's faces are inching closer together, albeit impossibly, glacially, slowly. Stop! Okay, stop it right now! She kneels right in front of them and jams her arm between them to stop them. They don't feel it. And suddenly they're on each other, making out hard with Gray's arm trapped between them. It's a minute before Gray is able to wiggle out from between them. No, stop! Okay, leave her sweater on. Holy sh... Okay, but not the pants. Not the pants. A pair of jeans hit Gray in the face. Gray runs around the room in a panic. She has to stop this and now, but how? The bird. The bird. Come on, bird. Gray sees a cute bird flying towards the window. She rushes over to open it, but right before she can, the bird crashes into the glass and falls to the ground dead. We stay close on the bird through grunts of pleasure and... Uh, well, wait, wait. We need a condom. Uh, uh, there's a bunch in Kimmy's box, or Gray's box. I'm Kimmy Gray's box. Okay, sex noises. <laughs> in the auditorium later, Gabe stands with the new arrivals who are all blown away by their touching trips down to earth. They gather around Steve, hanging on to his every word as he recounts his experience. I went into my dad's garage, and that's where I saw him sitting on his workbench, crying. But the tears stopped the moment I entered. We reverse onto Gray with the now alive bird on her shoulder. She's reeling on her feet, utterly heartbroken. He looked up, eyes still wet, and he said, Skipper? But, but is that you? Everyone gasps in disbelief. Everyone except Gray, who is just barely holding on to what's left of her sanity. And that's when I sent in a cool breeze. As it touched my dad's face, he, he broke down. And again, but this time, the tears weren't out of sadness. Gray notices a single tear fall down the woman's cheek next to her. She's now consumed with resentment and jealousy. Yeah, 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 we get it. Your dad is lame like you. Sorry, Steve. Continue. Please, God, no. I can't take these sappy stories. You guys are all acting like this is some huge deal. Look around. There is an afterlife. You're going to see all these people in like five minutes when an Amazon drone crashes into the Pentagon. Great. is horrified. Great, doll. Like Beethoven told Salieri, I am not hearing this. Zip it and let him... Fuck this, man. I'd rather shoot myself in the face and listen to all you idiots whine about Earth. Earth sucks. It's filled with terrible people and, and smog and terrible people. I'm glad I'm dead. This is the best day of my life, non-life, whatever. She storms out. The lady who is sitting next to her in the auditorium turns to the man next to her. I bet it didn't go well with her boyfriend. And we're exterior elsewhere plaza. Lou rushes through the courtyard talking on a walkie. Gabe's voice is on the other end of the device. What do you mean you can't find her? She has to be around here somewhere. I checked all the bathroom stalls and... Oh, oh wait. Okay. Lucy's Gray angrily stomp across the plaza and rushes after her. Gray makes her way into the food court. I got eyes on her. Thank God. The Gray is cray. Please make sure she doesn't destroy anything. 
she's just going to the food court probably to binge on carbs like every other skinny girl when they get depressed i'm all over it and we sweep through the hall of food it's like a low-end disney movie beds of shrimp a pasta station some dodgy sushi it's fancier than the sunday buffet at the sheraton but not as nice as the one at the four seasons lou finds gray who for some reason is collecting dozens of plates from all the tables hmm i didn't peg you for one of those weirdos who cleans when you're sad not gray snags a plate of pasta from an old lady mid-bite i'll finish great before she can respond gray dumps the pasta on the ground hey hey no no you can't do that sorry ethel gray ignores her and makes her way out the door grabbing another plate or two on her way lou confused follows we're in the alley lou catches up to gray who stops when she finds a brick wall she sets down her plates but keeps one what are you doing Dealing. Gray throws the plate as hard as she can against the wall. It loudly shatters into a million pieces. Lou watches in horror as she picks up another dish. To no, whoa, 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 stop. Gray ignores her and throws another plate. Oh, oh okay, you know, okay, look, look. I, I get you're upset, Gray, but let's go get some ice cream and talk about it. My day isn't so great either. What do you say? Gray looks at her then, smash, another plate. My world was literally blown apart today in every way. The only two people I care about on this, on that entire planet are boning right now, okay? And you want me to eat ice cream? Maybe a pulled pork sandwich? Smash, another one. Lou rushes in front of Gray trying to stop this. But Gray is already mid-throw, and before she sees Lou, the plate has already left her grip. Bam! It hits Lou smack in the face and shatters. Gray falls silent. Shit. Lou blinks in shock, staring at the broken plate. Oh, Dude, I'm so sorry. Yeah, shut up. I'm so sorry. Lou slowly shut looks up. up from the ground and locks eyes with Gray. That was amazing. Do it again. Uh, no, did... This isn't part of my dealing. I, I like to break things on inanimate objects. No, I do it again. Gray, a little scared, just barely tosses it. It lands three feet in front of Lou. Annoyed, Lou picks up a plate. Like this. Lou chucks it as hard as she can at Gray, who screams as the plate flies at her face. Bam, it smashes on her face and shatters. Gray cries <gasps> out in shock and crumbles to the floor. You're fucking psycho. What the hell is wrong with you? Lou is over her, a menacing grimace on her face. Feels good, right? No, it, it hurts. Does it really? Wait. No. You can't feel pain here. Nope. Gray stands up, a dangerous gleam in her eye. Oh, bitch, you just brought this to a whole other level. This is this is like some kind of fight club shit. We could totally fight club. Oh, bring it on. Before she can finish the sentence, Lou throws another plate at her. Gray returns the favor. Suddenly, Lou throws a hook at her cheek. She tries to land another in Gray's gut, but Gray blocks it, grabbing a nearby trash can lid and whacking her across the head with it. Lou falls to the floor and Gray stands over her, the bloodlust apparent on her face. We're interior of a bar called the Cigar Cigar. Ziggy, handsome in a James Dean sort of way, mixes a cocktail behind the bar. He lifts his head as the doors swing open. In walk Gray and Lou. Their hair is matted, their eyes glazed over. Lou has a slightly fat lip. They both look strangely satisfied as they grab a seat at the bar. 
Lulu, got a surprise for you in the machine. 19 hits. You got it? You're the best. Lou runs across the bar to a 1950s jukebox. Gray eyes her, amused. Ziggy immediately eyes up Gray, flirting. What's that about? Uh, a record she wanted. I pulled some strings, got it in the jukebox. Lou leans against the jukebox and thumps it with her fist. One, two, three. We don't have quarters up here, so it works off of uh, Fawn's hits. You're new here, right? I would have remembered a face like that. Yeah, it's pretty good. So I don't have any space dollars. Can I still get a drink here? On the house? Anything you'd like. Mm, let me think. Two grasshoppers. Up. Ziggy serves two drinks to Hector and Claire, the old couple from earlier, seated beside Gray. They toast their glasses. We drank grasshoppers on our first date in 1965. Married 49 years, would have been 50 this September. Not that I'm complaining. We got two beautiful children out of it. And seven grandchildren. And you died together. That's some kismet. Holding hands in our sleep. They kiss. It's sweet. Gray eyes them skeptically. That's unusual, isn't it? Both of you in your sleep together? We visited our family this afternoon, you know, to release the bird. They loved the bird. They mentioned a leak in the furnace. We didn't feel a thing. At the mention of furnace, Gray's interest is piqued. Furnace. Must have been an old house. Oh, a beautiful Victorian. Not too shabby, Hector. You must have done nice for yourself. Doctor? Uh, commercial real estate. What are mm. you getting at? Just that it's a real coincidence. Two wealthy homeowners with a horde of young relatives dying at the exact same time. You have a trust set up for any of those grandchildren? Our grandchildren are happy, successful members of society. But a darkness gathers across Claire's face and she whispers. Except for Billy. Ooh, tell me about Billy. Our daughter's oldest. He had a hard childhood, a, a learning disability, and then a mm. spell with Adderall. His pool cleaning business just went under. Uh, I'm sure he'll get back on his feet in no time. Billy killed you. Ah! Claire lets out a sob. Hector stands up quickly, knocking over his plates. A few people turn and stare. How, how dare you? How dare you imply that my grandson, who I cradled in my arms, who I prayed for every day during his speedboat accident. Yeah, where is he living now? D don't answer that. Don't answer that. Boom. He's in your house, isn't he? Hector bites back a sob, running from the bar. Claire follows. <laughs> Proud of her discovery, Gray turns to Ziggy. You know what I would like? A piña colada. Can you make one of those? But Ziggy is stupefied. You monster. What you just did to that couple was terrible. What are you talking about? I told them the truth. That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, what if I lied? Then every time we run into each other upstairs, it'll be all awkward. Yeah, telling the truth isn't always the right thing to do. Of course it is. That's like the first thing we're taught. Don't lie. I just found out my boyfriend and my best friend are rats, you know? I mean, I bet Kimmy, bet Kimmy purposely had me sign that stupid document while I was driving so I would die, and then she could bone my boyfriend, see? I'm glad I know the truth. No, you're not. Yes, I am, because now I don't have to feel badly about being here. Okay. I see it now. You're a coward. 
You don't care about anything. You can't get hurt. I care about a lot of things. Like. Uh -huh. You just ruined that couple's afterlife and you don't care. Your boyfriend cheated on you. You don't care. You just died and you don't care. Orphans. I feel super bad for orphans. And for the record, I did. I did care about James. And, and, and look where that got me. Anyway, spare me, bro. Okay. If I want to get psychoanalyzed, I'll see a real shrink. Just. I was a shrink on earth. In fact, I was the best. The toast of the, of 19th century Bavaria. And even back then in Germany, you would have been considered cold. Wait, go back. What do you mean? What do you mean on earth? You're an angel, right? Lady, I'm no angel. I'm dead flesh, just like, just like you and Lou. Stunned, she turns to Lou, who has collapsed, sobbing against the jukebox as she listens to the Bach cello suites. What's happening to her? Today is the uh, anniversary of her suicide. This is the song that was playing when she... But wait a minute. Humans are only stuck here till tonight. Ziggy takes in a sharp breath. <laughs> if they told you the truth, it'd be chaos. But. Off of gray, scared to hear what's next. We cut to the botanical garden. The counselors are all practicing Tai Chi as gray searches for Gabe. Suddenly a rustling behind her. It's coming from the bushes. She moves deeper into the foliage to find Gabe sitting cross-legged on the floor, reading the same Us magazine. Ah! You cannot sneak up on people like that, especially while I'm reading the news. Gray rips the magazine out of Gabe's hands and looks at the cover. He leaves her for Angelina Jolie. What? You ruined my only magazine. Gray tosses the magazine into the bushes. Look, Ziggy told me the truth, that not everyone ascends, but I will, right? Gabe winces a little and feels around for a heavy rock. Gray sees this. But you don't need a weapon. Just tell me I'm going up. I'm honest and I'm generous. I just dropped off a Vitamix at Goodwill, okay? I'm a good person, I swear. You really think that, don't you? And we go to the cloud. It's something out of a clockwork orange, a stark white space shaped like, well, a cloud. Gray sits in a white chair. Gabe paces. This is the cloud. It's where we store your memories, good or bad. The walls light up, a full LED projection of baby Gray being born. The Chiron on the screen reads December 16th, 1981. I want you to look at this objectively and tell me if you deserve to ascend tonight. Gray nods, and we're full screen on the images on the walls. Quick cuts of various moments from Gray's life. We're in a hospital in 1981. We're close on baby Gray, adorable in the doctor's hands. We hear her mother and the doctor. She's beautiful. We found a partial umbilical cord in her hand. We have reason to believe she may have eaten her twin. We go to a middle school playground in 1987. Six-year-old Gray is in the schoolyard. She helps a nerdy girl to her feet. She dusts off her scraped knees. Don't listen to those bullies. I think you're cool. Then a cool girl calls to Gray. Gray, do you want to sit at our lunch table today? Gray considers this, turns, and pushes the nerdy girl back into the dirt. 
We go to Gray's childhood bedroom in 1990. As her parents fight loudly in another room, nine-year-old Gray sits in front of her own birthday cake, staring at the candle. As the fighting grows more intense, Gray, captivated by the flame, lifts the candle and moves it closer, closer, closer to the drapes. We go to high school in 1994. Teenage Gray helps pick up some Poindexter's lunch tray of spilled food. Don't listen to them. They're all jerks. A football player calls to her. Hey, Gray, you coming to our game tonight? And Gray drops the Poindexter's tray back on the floor. We're in a college dorm room, the year's 2000. Gray is in bed with a hot hippie guy when the door bursts open. She's busted. Ray, how could you? I thought we were friends. It's now the year 2001. Gray is in bed with another hot guy when the door bursts open. She's busted. And again in 2001, Gray is in bed with a hot metrosexual guy when the door bursts open. She's busted. Alan, how could you? I thought you were gay. And Gray, I thought you were my friend. <laughs> we go to a law school classroom on various days. There's quick cuts of Gray over various days cheating off of other students' papers. We're exterior a parking lot in 2006. A Mercedes trying to park thonks into the side of a lesser car. It quickly pulls back and drives away. We know who the driver was. There's a supercut of five more of these. Same Mercedes, different cars. Then we go to a courtroom in 2008. 27-year-old Gray, looking sharp in a suit, leans over to a colleague. Between you and me, I think he's guilty and I hope he rots in hell. He's our client. <laughs> we go to Gray's bedroom. Various days. It's a supercut of Gray in various bras and negligees, pre-sex. Gray in 2002. Of course I'm on the pill. In 2004. Of course I've been tested for HPV. In 2006. Of course I don't find your brother attractive. Again in 2006. Of course you're better at this than your brother was. In 2008. Of course I've been tested for HPV strain 16. In 2010. Of course I love you. And we reverse, we reverse to see James, Gray's boyfriend from the earlier scene. And I definitely don't have HPV. In 2011 in a courtroom, Gray helps a colleague pack up his briefcase. You did your best. You fought for your client. And that makes me proud to be a part of this law firm. A slick guy in a suit approaches with a business card. Ray Chapman. I'm from Axel Foley and Rosewood. Can I take you to lunch? Gray drops her colleague's papers on the table. And now we're in a mediation room. It's 2016. We're back in the scene that opened this episode. Ellen Newbuck is crying and Gray smiles coldly. I think the number is much closer to 400,000. And then we're in Gray's car from earlier today. Gray is driving while trying to sign the document. She steers with her knee and starts to sign. We see a stop sign through her window. She blows right past it. Screech. And now we're back in the cloud. Gray looks up at Gabe pleadingly. Okay, first of all, that was some Patriot Act bullshit. All right. And okay, so I'm not a state. Okay, but I did my best. Did you? Oh, shut up. Somebody up here created us, gave us free will. And now you're telling me as we get punished, you're telling me we get punished and we don't use it properly. So why did you give it to us in the first place? And why did you make feeling doing bad things feel so freaking good? And why does the system and universe you created keep rewarding us for doing bad things? 
Where I come from, we call that entrapment. And yes, I did my best. I did do my best. I maybe didn't have the best parents or any self-esteem or friends to talk to, but I did what I had to do to take care of myself, to make money and find love or, or to look myself in the mirror. And isn't that the whole point? The difference between you and me to err is human. Well, I'm human. I'm flesh and blood, just like everybody down there. Just like, just like. She holds up the magazine. Brad Pitt. Okay. There aren't so things aren't so simple on earth. Sometimes it looks like you have it all. The job, the looks, America's sweetheart, Jennifer Aniston on your arm. You're supposed to be happy. And you don't even realize how empty you've gotten, how useless you feel until Angelina comes along. And it's a hard decision to make. But humans make those decisions 10 times a day and they do their best. I did my best. Now, I would like to go upstairs, please. Gabe looks at her almost sympathetically. I'm going to play that last clip again. Look closer. And we're back in Gray's car from earlier. She's driving while trying to sign the document. She steers with her knee and starts to sign. You see the stop sign through her window. She blows right past it. There's a screech. But this time we zoom through the very corner of the windshield and we see the other car that Gray plowed into. And inside, it's Steve. Back in the cloud, Gray, in total disbelief, looks up at Gabe. I killed Skipper. Gabe nods sympathetically. So that's why he hates me. So if I apologize, I have a shot at ascending. You have six minutes to find out. Quick cuts as Gray takes off sprinting through the plaza. We track her as she weaves between stiffs and counselors, hurdles over puppies. She breathes heavily as she runs through the terminal against the direction down the moving walkway. She maneuvers her way through the hall of food. She bursts outside onto the field of ascension, looks behind her at the Hill Valley clock tower, one minute till midnight. She pushes, panting until it's in view. Ascension fountain. It looks a lot like the Grove or a fountain in Vegas, a big splashy number with colored lights and dancing streams of water. Gray's whole group, including Steve, is circled around it. She pauses out of breath, but the bell rings in midnight and the clouds begin to part. She moves towards Steve, but she's thrown backwards by a tractor beam as it searches the crowd, finding Hector and carrying him up to the sky. The other members of the group stare upward, spreading their arms, waiting to be carried away. One by one, they ascend. Grave weaves through levitating bodies to reach Steve, but she's too late. As quickly as the beams arrived, they're gone, taking their passengers with them. All that's left is Gray and Larry. She shrinks to the ground in exhaustion, and that's when she sees him across the fountain. Steve, still standing there, his arms thrown open to the heavens, a baffled look on his face. No, no, no. This, this can't be right. I don't... I don't understand. This can't be right. Gray shrinks down further, awkward. Steve angrily paces and points his finger toward the skies, yelling at somebody. No, I, I did everything I was supposed to. Okay, everything. I recycled. I signed every petition outside of Trader Joe's. I drive a goddamn Nissan Leaf, for fuck's sake. Tell me what I did wrong. All of my shoes are Tom's. His pacing has reached the other side of the fountain where Gray is sitting. Steve sees her. Hey. You! You're the kind of person who belongs here. Selfish and cruel, vain and petty. You think I'm pretty? Even your voice is like a dagger through my ears. 
I should be running naked through heaven, okay? The pearly gates. And inside, I'm here with you. You. Meanwhile, the guy who plowed his range over into me is probably kicking it on earth, enjoying a grapefruit LaCroix, the best flavor. Gray rises to her feet to defend herself, but suddenly his words hit her. Steve has no idea that she killed him. She gently puts her hand on his shoulder, comforting him. Shh. It'll be okay. I know this sucks, but we're going to get through it. He nods. He looks at Gray in a slightly more flattering light. Thanks. I'm sorry about what I said. Let's start over. How did you die? Brain cancer. He hugs her sympathetically. I'm so sorry. I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe breakfast? Wait, do we, do we still need to eat here? Oh, look who wasn't totally paying attention. <laughs> he gives her a sarcastic look, but it's actually a nice moment. But as soon as he's out of sight, Gray desperately grabs Larry's arm and confesses. Dude, I totally killed that guy. Larry squeezes her shoulder and smiles warmly. He's perfect. Gray stares helplessly, hopelessly into the distance. These are her people now, and they all have a lot of work to do. In the distance, the hands on the clock tower continue to tick, getting ready for another day. And that is our show. Okay, like I said, that was our first Zoom reading. So we just have a couple little kinks to work out. As you noticed, the very last line of the script got lost in a kind of muting, unmuting snafu. So while this is hardly the ideal way for uh, the blow to the whole show to land, uh, here it is. So uh, Gray finds Larry and says, dude, I totally killed that guy. And Larry smiles warmly at her and says, I leveled an entire Vietnamese village during the war. Nobody's perfect. We aren't perfect here at Dead Pilot Society either, but we do our best. Um, so people, look, the job market is a mess right now. It's definitely a mess in Hollywood, but it's a mess everywhere. So whether you're looking for a new opportunity or you want to make yourself a stronger candidate for promotion, business skills, which I wish I had more of, but business skills will help you take the next step. The University of Toronto Rotman School of, Man of Management is one of the best schools in Canada and the world. It's ranked number 17 for open enrollment executive education by the Financial Times. Financial Times. They don't mess around. Um, MBA Essentials Online is your bridge to business. In just three weeks, you'll learn how to work collaboratively across divisions, develop your business acumen, and network with a global group of early to mid-career professionals like yourself. And if you live in the United States, which I think probably a lot of our listeners do, the price is in Canadian dollars. So the exchange rate works in your favor, meaning the US dollar price is lower. So look, if, if any of this uh, sounds like something that might be helpful to you during this time, go to uofte.me slash maxfun. That is uofte.me slash maxfun 
to learn more and apply. The class starts on August 10th, 2020. So start your application today to save your seat. It's uoft.me slash maxfun. Rotman, here's where it changes. Okay, so as I mentioned at the top of the episode, it is the Max Fun Drive. We only do this once a year. And everyone at Max Fun, all of us, the creators and, and, the, and the people that run Max Fun, we struggled with whether to do it at all this year. Um, and uh, we know there are so many causes. But, you know, and we look, we also know that some people are not in a financial position to be Max Fund members. And we totally get that. But look, if you are in a position to invest in this show, we really appreciate you supporting our ability to make it. We've heard from a lot of you that this show has been a bright spot on some of these many, many difficult days. We want to keep providing that. So you go to MaximumFun.org slash join. You'll see all the ways you can give. Like I said before, $5, $10 a month. Some people go $20 a month or more. We're grateful for whatever level of support you're comfortable with. One of the cool gifts this year put together a max fun game pack for you everyone's uh, at home a lot of gaming going on it includes a set of max fun branded dice i know that's not how gaming is normally used uh a set of max fun branded dice and a velvet bag with the rocket logo as well as a deck of custom max fun inspired playing cards every face card holds several designs uh nodding to shows on the network go check that out it's pretty cool now, look when you become a member you're supporting all the other great Max Fun podcasts too. You know, there are a bunch of members of the uh, Extended Dead Pilot Society family, actors that we've had on the show or writers whose scripts we've done who have their own podcasts on Max Fun. There's the JV Club with the amazing Janet Varney. There's Judge John Hodgman. There's We Got This with Mark Gagliardi and Hal Lublin. Uh, Reading Glasses is great. There's the Jackie and Lori show. There's so many. All of these hosts are also working hard as they're going through this to make sure that they have something meaningful to share with you during this time. We're so grateful to those of you who support our ability to do this, not just for us, but for all the people who enjoy what we do and that we can continue to do so because of your membership. Okay. Uh, now here's my interview with Corinne and Noel. I just like felt cooler just talking to these women. I love talking to these women so much. Um, so funny. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, that's coming up right now. All right. I'm here with Corinne and Noel. Hey guys. Hi. Uh, why don't you each sort of say your name so we can tell your voices apart on the podcast. Corinne. No. I think we're going to need more than that, Corinne. I'm Corinne Kingsbury. Oh, no, Noelle, you're confusing everyone. Uh, Noelle Valdivia. Corinne Kingsbury. And you just heard my uh, email ding, and it was Postmates um, upgrading me for $10. Ooh, nice. What a day you're having already. <laughs> I mean, really, you guys, it's, it's going great. Um. We'll get into all this, but Corinne, you are, you've got a pilot right now, correct? Um, presumably. We'll so, see if anything ever gets shot ever again, but yes. Not, but what is that? I'm so curious what that's like prepping and being in pre-production for a pilot right now in July, 2020. It's a lot like um, not having a pilot and not being in pre-production because there's nothing really going on. We, casted before we cast it before uh lockdown and quarantine and then now everything is just sort of 
on hold until it's up and running again. So okay, that is what is happening. A lot okay. Of all right, because casting, I feel like casting can work because nowadays you're wa- you're just watching people on tape and people can self tape and casting can go on. Yeah, on. absolutely. So yeah, but we're all we're pretty much cast, um, but we're not like building sets or doing anything like that right now. Okay. All right. Well, good luck. Hope it happens at some point. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right, you guys. Well, let's uh, before we get into talking about elsewhere. Uh, I'd, uh, I'm curious about your sort of origin stories. Who wants to, to go first? You know, uh, we've got a lot of writers who listen and they always want to hear how people broke into writing. Oh, uh, Noel, I, Noel and I have very different trajectories. Do you want to, do you want to take it away? Um, well, first of all, we're, we don't usually write together. Correct. Uh, yeah. And we're never going to write together again. <laughs> Yes. Anything with anyone ever again because we'll never this bedroom. Um, yeah, we'll get to how you teamed up, but yeah, I'm curious how you both got started. I got started in a super traditional way, I think, which is just sort of the working way up from an assistant. I studied playwriting at NYU, and I intended to be a playwright, but I it is I actually always wanted to be a TV writer, but I didn't know how to go about doing that. And playwriting was sort of what was being offered in the dramatic writing program at NYU more than. Um, but when I graduated, I wasn't quite sure how to break into that. And so I moved into journalism to write for money, uh, just when journalism was dying. So that didn't pan out. And then I, uh, someone just said, listen, if you really want to do, it was actually a BBC exec who I blindly emailed said, if you really want to be a TV writer, just move to LA, you have to, um, do that if you want to break in. And so I did. And I got, I immediately got a good assistant job because I was so much older than all the other people. I'd already had this whole other career trying to break in. And so I got an assistant job in TV lit at what was William Morris then, and then a writer's assistant job and a showrunner's assistant job. And how did you get that? Just to pause, how did you get that writer's assistant job? Was it just, it was coming in through the agency. You were seeing what, who was looking for writer's assistants? Um, basically, yes. At, Actually, the more interesting thing is how I got the assistant job, which is that I went to, with my mother to go hear David Steinberg, the old comedy director, speaking, and because I really like him, and it was being monitored. It was being moderated by a writer at Bill Maher, and my mother was like, "Go talk to the moderator and tell him you want to be a TV writer too." And I was like, "I don't think that's like such mom advice." And I was like, "I don't think people do that. Like, he's not going to help me." But it was Scott Carter, and he took me out for lunch at uh, Lucy's El Adobe and said, I'll never forget, write like Beach Boys Pet Sound, not like Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Hearts Club Band. And, which I think he meant like be authentic, don't be like flashy and gimmicky and trendy. Um, but it took me 10 years to fully understand that advice. And then he and his assistant helped me get a job at William Morris. And then from there, I made friends with some of the writing clients and uh, got my first job as a writer's assistant working for Gary Scott Thompson on Knight Rider. Wow, okay. Yes, and yeah, greatness was born. Um, <laughs> and so did you end up, did you get a script on Knight Rider or wh- how did you make oh, no, that the leap? Very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, and then I went on to work for Amy Lippman and Chris Kaiser on Lone Star. And then that show got canceled quickly, but it parlayed into a show called Awake on NBC. And that's when I uh, got my first script slash staff writing job. 
And and you've mostly written in one hour. Is that kind of what you've mostly done or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. I was on Ash versus Evil Dead and Mozart in the Jungle and Everything Sucks, which are all half hours. But no, I like you're forgetting about one. And <laughs> no, no, I don't think I'm leaving anything out. Oh, you're not leaving anything out? All right. Um, no, Corinne and I also wrote on a half hour of really fun experience where we went to go live in Vegas for many months called Sin City Saints. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I like a dark half hour or a light one hour. And you've kind of, so you've been able to sort of bounce back and forth and, and you, you like mixing it up. Uh, I love mixing it up. And I, I think most writers do now it, the line to me between comedy and drama always seemed a little arbitrary. And frankly, you know, there were more serious episodes of all in the family. It seems like the, the line between the two was sort of invented more in the nineties and I'm happy to see it, uh, disappearing in the distance again. Yeah. Um, and what, any favorites? Because you've got some amazing show credits on your resume. What were some of the favorite shows? Um, I actually probably just finished up on my favorite. And it's weird because sometimes the better shows are, you know, the harder experiences and vice versa. And you can learn a lot in the negative from the worst shows. And But the, I just actually came off just a really short room on... Um, called Kevin Can Go Elf, which is written by this great young writer, Valerie Armstrong. It's her first thing out of the gate, and it's uh, picked up at AMC. What's and it called again? You got it, you broke up there a little bit. It's called Kevin Can Go Fuck Himself. Okay. What did Kevin do, and why does he have to go do that to himself? It's, um, it's great. It's a partially multicam and partially single cam, and the idea is that it's the put-upon wife from a Kevin James show, whose husband oh. like, messing up her job interview and keeps like messing up the house she just decorated. Except when you step back into the single cam, you see that this is like actually an abusive relationship <laughs> where this guy who has this wife who's way out of his league is basically keeping her in financial captivity because he's the earner in the house. Oh, wow. And so she kind of starts plotting her break away from him. Um, but it plays the, sitco the sitcom ha part you know, all of the single camps are an answer to the multi-camp scenes. And, but the sitcom parts are played completely straight with good jokes, like as you would write a very offensive 90s sitcom. Um, that sounds amazing. It's actually pretty awesome. And I think because she's a young writer, she kind of, unlike the story Corinne told before we started uh, recording, she didn't feel bound to do what everyone who came before her did. She kind of just invented her own genre and it really works and it's really impressive and what stage is that in did you did they get to shoot any of them before they to start shooting uh, <laughs> yeah. all right well someday so, this may or may not exist yeah, yeah. Project i'm discussing are they going to plan to shoot the multi-cam stuff in front of a live audience that had been the plan um and they definitely it was all it's interesting because it went straight to series because it's amc but like it seems like you would really want to make a pilot of this show um yeah, it sounds so cool though it is but it's everything's hard finding actors who can do both is hard finding directors who can do both is hard so all right noel i'll do it <laughs> <laughs> could you please star as kevin yes i'll do it all right i'll do it Jeez. uh but yes that is the thing that's excited me the most recently yeah. I think, um, I think live sitcom audiences, we may be, we may be a ways away from, uh, from packing bleachers on a soundstage. Well, that's true. Dead sitcom audiences. <laughs> it's uh, easy to find. It. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So Corinne, yeah. your turn. I mean, uh, what you're going to learn from this podcast is Noelle is much smarter than I am. Uh, my, and I have so much to show for it. What did you say? And I have so much to show for it. We have this dead pilot, which I think is great um, to show for it. No, I, uh, I grew up very blue collar. I didn't go to college. I moved out here when I was 17. Um, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was like living in a house with a bunch of girls and we would drink too much and sleep around too much. And that's sort of what we did. And I waited on tables and, you know, uh, while Noel was, uh, while Noel was working at fancy agencies, I was working at like Mimi's cafe. Um, and I would meet writers like around town and I was like, God, that's like the coolest job. And as I started thinking, I was like, I have always sort of written as a kid. Like I would write plays for my parents to act out and, um, uh, that's what I would do. And I, I, and I loved it, but I didn't really know how to, what kind of writing I wanted. I didn't know anything. And so I went to UCLA extension and I thought for a minute, I wanted to maybe write novels um, but that did not, that would, that never really, um, gelled with me. And then I took another UCLA extension course and then, um, it was like intro to screenwriting. And then I just remembered like the first time I wrote dialogue, I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I really just fell in love with the medium. And I grew up on TV and I grew up watching movies. Um, obviously I didn't want to, I didn't want to write books because I never read one. Um, that is not true. Um, um, but I, yeah, I just like, I really love TV and I really love movies and that's what I wanted to do. And I ended up leaving that course and they wanted you to, to do the next course and the next course and the next course. And I was very impatient. I was never a good student. Um, and so I just bought a book, um, at a bookstore called how to write a screenplay in 21 days. And I just sat in my house and I wrote this screenplay in 21 days. And I got, uh, luckily I got a manager very quickly and I got an agent very quickly. And then I sold that screenplay to Lionsgate. And okay, back up. How did yeah. you, cause this is the kind of, these are the kind of illusions that, that people listening are like, wait, what? You just skipped this step. Like how you have this screenplay, how do you get it to that manager yeah. and, and, does it, and I assume the manager gets it to an agent, but how do you get it to that manager? Yeah, I had a friend named Kristen Campo who worked at, um, oh my God, what was my first management company? Hold on. There have oh been God. so many since. <laughs> I fire all of my representation every two weeks. Three months. <laughs> I don't even, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. I have no idea what the name of that management company was. Anyway, she worked, my, my friend Kristen Camp at the time worked at this management company and she read it and she really liked it and she gave it to him and then he called me and was like, I would love to represent you. And I said, oh, okay. I, I, you know, I was in no position to argue even though I don't know the name of your management company um, and I never will. <laughs> <laughs> and so he then sent my script to William Morris at the time. And then I, um, they signed me and then he sent it out and he thought there was going to be a giant bidding war over it. He's like, we're going to, it's going to be insane. And of course, nobody wanted to buy it at one place. But did, and, so I was thrilled. and yeah. but you did sell it. I did. I sold it to Lionsgate. Yeah. And it was in development for about three years and it never got made. And then, um, I was sold it. A a comedy? Of, it was a comedy. Yeah. I was trying to be one. 
Um, looking back now, I wonder how it would read, but yes, it was a comedy. Um, and then after that, I, I sold another, I, I worked, I did a couple other features and it was just so slow moving and nothing got made and I got frustrated. And then I got an opportunity to work in TV and I jumped at it because I was just so excited to, uh, to write something and have it be shot and have it be produced and see it. And then I really fell in love with the TV medium and I've never really gone back to features. I mean, I've written a couple, of course they didn't get made either. Um, this is not great advertisement for me. <laughs> well, you've got plenty of Maybe I should have never fired all those managers. Maybe they would do a better job of doing some PR for me right now. I've written 22 features. Not one of them has ever gotten made. <laughs> Um, but was, so was the newsroom, was, was that the first TV? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. And how was that? It was great. You know, it was, it, it was a crash course in writing for sure. Um, you know, learning from one of the greats is something that I hold near and dear and I feel very fortunate. Um, but then the next experience was not as good. The next experience was not as good. No, um, I did not have a great experience on this short-lived show I worked on. That and I don't know why we were like, why are we being so quiet? The show was called Back in the Game, and it was run by two horrible people. So you guys can IMDb and uh, see those sexual harassing sociopaths. Name. <laughs> um, so that wasn't good, and that made you feel like, I don't want to staff anymore, right? I don't want to staff, yeah, and I was really frustrated. And at that point, I had sold a couple pilots, and I was just like, I don't want to staff anymore. I was pretty done with it. And uh, once a year, I would sort of sell a pilot, and that's how I made my money. And some of them would get close, some of them wouldn't, um, and they didn't get made, much like this one that, uh, that we read for you guys. Um, and then... You know, I've been at this for about 12 years now. And then out of nowhere, I, I sold two pilots in one year. They both got shot. They both got picked up. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? And that's what happened. And then one of them got canceled very quickly. And the other one, you know, luckily I'm in, I'm writing the third season right now, which has just been so great. So that's in the dark. Is, that is in the dark. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so that... That thing of you know, because I've had seasons where I was just had two pilots, and it's like, well, what happens if they both go? And I'm always like, that's just not going to happen. I don't give that any thoughts because it's just the never going to happen. Yeah, and it did happen to you. It did. Yeah, it was one of the most bizarre things. I also had like a one year old. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that I never. I was like, hey, kid, uh, thank you for coming into this world. I'm never going to see you again. Uh, so it was just, my life was just so insane. It went from just going to the grocery store every day and like maybe working out to, and figuring out what I was going to make for dinner and like writing for a couple hours to waking up at 5am with a baby, trying to feed it and then going to work. And then, you know, I would go to one show and then go to the other show. And then, uh, the multicams, as you know, work until three in the morning, I would try to go home to put my son to bed. It was just the craziest year of my life. And did you have someone who was kind of running the multicam and you were more, I mean, were you more on one or the other or were you really kind of running both? I was more on in the dark than I was on uh fam. Yeah. I had somebody running uh fam, but it was, you know, I was still there a lot. I was still there a lot. Um, it was crazy because, you know, you have both of these shows and 
you want them both to be good and you're like, I want to be invested in both of them. Uh, and it's just, I, I couldn't let either one of them go. Yeah. Wow. It's, I know. And people were like, Oh, sorry about your rich person's problems, but yeah, don't feel sorry for me, but do a little bit because I don't remember one year of my child's life. So, um, but you wouldn't remember that probably much of that anyway. So, um, probably not. So how do you, how do you and Noelle meet? How do you guys meet? Uh, Noelle is a good friend of mine. What? What? We share a good mutual. Who are you? Um, I don't know her. Like, <laughs> we have a good mutual friend, but it's but just when hearing you tell that story, it made me laugh because the, back in the game, the second show, remember that was like your, it was both, we were both staffing for the second time and staffing season was so brutal. And we were, it was like our second jobs and we were terrified we wouldn't get jobs. And you, me, and Camilla went to that empty restaurant, smoked cigarettes on the patio all night. Oh, yes. That we'd continue to have careers in TV. <laughs> and talking about all the terrible meetings we'd had. So it's so nice to actually be 10 years after all of that. And we don't smoke cigarettes anymore. Uh, we would if we still had beautiful pink lungs like we did when we were 26. <laughs> <laughs> so we shared a mutual good friend and we've been good friends for, I don't know, almost, how long has it been? I, I mean, it's been since the beginning of both of the stories we were telling. So I guess it's been like a decade now. We just told everyone how old we are, Noelle. <laughs> You're 10. Wow, thank you. Um, and so how did you, how did this pilot come about? How did you guys decide to write something together? I think we were probably just sitting on my couch drinking too much wine, thinking about our future and how we weren't staffed on a show. And we we're like, should we just try to sell a pilot? And we, I think we just started thinking. And I, I, don't, I just sort of happened very organically with the help of, uh, grapes that have been fermented. Yeah, like a $7 bottle of Trader Joe's wine. Um, it also, though, I, I think I think a lot of it came out of our relationship and just like female friendships and how there's a lot of, um, like this show in particular was a lot about like how hard we were finding it to like try and check all of the boxes of being like having fancy jobs you're supposed to have in LA, but also like keeping it tight like you're supposed to in LA and doing Tracy Anderson while also having a house that's beautiful that you take little vignette pictures of and put it on Instagram. And like we were drinking $7 wine at two o'clock in the afternoon while sort of maintaining these fake lives of being these fabulous like LA ladies. <laughs> we were just doing all the stuff we thought you were supposed to do and we were complaining about how unhappy we both were. <laughs> and how few yeah. results we are getting from all of this illusion. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was, a, that was a lot of it. And it was also just like staffing on these shows and like reading these scripts. I just didn't feel represented as a woman with the shows that were being made. Like it was just, I didn't, I mean, and now where I love that, you know, this, this pilot we wrote so many years ago, and now there's just the, the women that I'm seeing on screen are just, so inspiring and uh i'm in awe like the shows that exist now i'm just i'm just so happy that they are on air you know i just started watching i may destroy you and i just cannot i, know. I cannot like i can't even like, even if somebody I, I, it was hype to me and i'm like it doesn't even it out hypes the hype like it is just so 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 good 
Yeah, it makes you kind of want to hang it up and just be like, I can't do anything that good. So what's the point? And I'm like, can you just scrape me off a little piece of your brain, please? You have enough. Just, just scrape me off a little. I'll take it. I like that it isn't just one thing, though. It's the same thing that kind of that line that I was talking about. Like, what yeah. is it, the comedy? Is it? It almost feels like a horror the way reality is coming for her and like the truth about her own life. It's just it's so many things, and it's messy and imperfect. But that's so much better than just the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and I just thought it was so in- it's, it was so interesting the way that she has tackled sexual abuse and it's it's the type of sexual abuse that that um i've had in my life and it's just like to to have it be in this way that is unflinching and unnerving and it it's just it really blew my fucking mind it treats it like a like the conspiracy that it actually is as opposed to just like a passing fuck up yeah exactly and how like rape is rape no matter (laughs) wait what'd you say this podcast is about I destroy. <laughs> so easily we could we could spend a lot of time because it's there's so much I want to talk to people about that show. Yeah, we I I just started watching and I'm so used to the Netflix model that I went on HBO Go and it was just like yeah. there were five episodes and we watched the fifth one. I was just like, oh, I guess there's just five. Like it's over now because <laughs> I was like, oh no, wait, there's one every week. There's twelve of them, right? So I I'm very excited that there's seven more coming yeah and it's so interesting because you know there's there's this direct line that everyone wants to connect this show to fleabag right because it's like these two messy women they're both british and it's just i was having this conversation with my friend yesterday i'm like it's so fucked up that like we feel like we have to compare these two shows like no one's comparing two men who make two great shows it's like there can only be one genius woman and like now she has dethroned Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I'm like, no, they both exist. They're both genius. Let's stop comparing women and like, let's let them all just exist on their, uh, on their level of genius. And like, one doesn't take away from the other. They both are fucking great. Yeah, it's such a good point. Um, and I do it too. I was like, I immediately watched that show and I immediately tra- started to compare it to Fleabag. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, I fall victim to it too. And I think we all do. And I'm like, I think that we need to just stop doing that you know yeah and the other thing that i find i do and even women writers do is that thing of assuming anything a woman writes is autobiographical do you guys find that you fall victim to that too Um, everyone writes is autobiographical to (laughs) some extent so but not literally uh, obviously yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't I don't know that I do that, but um Andrew, you're really fucked up, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe it's just me. Um I'm trying to, to break out of that pattern. No, but I think that is Yeah, but I think that is something like when something is so raw and it is so personal, you immediately associate the person who wrote it, I think, as somebody who has experienced that because you're like, How could you possibly write something so great if you haven't experienced this thing. And I'm like, well, you know, it's writing. And you make it up. Like as an actor, you're like, I I don't have to be an alien to play one convincingly. Right. I mean, do you, so there are these shows, Fleabag and I May Destroy You, but I mean, in network television that that you still are working in, Corinne, you know, not exclusively, but 
do you feel that that network television has opened up in the way that female characters are allowed to behave? Because I think traditionally network executives have always been so ruthless with the notes about female leads and the and prescribing just like these small lanes of acceptable behavior for female characters. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't know if anybody's seen In the Dark, but I the CW has just been the most amazing partners. And we're going now into our third season. And as I'm writing it, I can tell you that I've had notes calls on every single one of our scripts and not one time from the studio or the network have I ever gotten the note, can she be more likable or I don't like her here. Um, they've really leaned into how flawed she is and how messy she is and how real she is. And I've never experienced that um, with them at all. That's great. Um, so, I mean, elsewhere, you guys sold to TV land, correct? Yeah. Um, so can you, you know, tell me a little bit about just how you pitched it? You know, you're sort of talking about where the germ of the idea came from. But do you remember much about the pitch? Um, I remember uh, our NBC pitch, which was hilarious because... <laughs> They had just bought The Good Place and it was our first pitch and The Good Place, what we learned later that it was a very hush-hush project because he already knew exactly like how the whole show was going to end and they had already, I think, picked it up to series even before the pilot was shot, if I recall correctly, I could be wrong. And so I remember I, Noel is a very good pitcher, I'm a very nervous pitcher, I don't enjoy uh, being on, I, I, I don't enjoy performing, but Noel was just like effortless. I thought you were such a, you were so good at it. Um, and the exact opposite, but I remember that we both kept turning red and sweating. <laughs> I had hives. I, what happened was I had hives and I forgot. Well, what happened was I, we started, we had our whole spiel and we rehearsed it so many times and we were feeling really good about it. And we walked into NBC with our, you know, cute Zara outfits on. Um, and we were ready to go and we, uh, pitched them the premise. And then I just saw all their, they just started looking at each other. Like I, what the fuck is, is this? Because there was a show that we just bought this exactly. No, it wasn't exactly obviously, but it was a very similar concept. And I assumed that they were looking at each other like this is awful. And then I started to hyperventilate and I started breaking out in like hives and I looked at Noel and I was like, this isn't going well. Then I think he tried to like finish my own personal story for me. Like I, I told the story how I witnessed a plane crash when I was a child. And <laughs> do you remember? It was like a different take on religion. And I witnessed this plane crash when I was six years old. And I started talking about how like my dad, like my dad is 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 a character, and 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 he told us that we were going to die and that we should pray for my mom. And I started telling this story. And I forgot what I was saying. And I think, Noelle, you just like picked me up and you're like, anyway, her, her dad then did this. And it was just a disaster. I remember that one being a full, full disaster. What was weird too is because obviously like sure is big property, but because of, of that show, I guess. And they had announced that they'd sold the good place, but they hadn't said it was about a woman who died and was in an afterlife. So the NBC meeting, there were like 13 execs and we were no, but like no one had heard of us. So most of our meetings were like two people, but I guess everyone came out to hear the idea that was, <laughs> so like all of the head, like big people that we could not have gotten a meeting with were in this and were uninterested in actually the idea just wanted, I think, hear what, it was just very, very surreal and not good. <laughs> and enough. that was our first meeting. And then like I walked out and like, and I like took a Xanax. I'm like, I'm having a severe panic attack. That was so bad. 
At the last meeting, remember, we went and had that glass of red wine before and you were like, I'm nervous. And I was like, let's just get this over with. <laughs> <laughs> you were at some oh, yeah, at that weird restaurant in Culver City. Yes. I was like, I think we should just drink. This is awful. I'm clearly, I hate pitching more than anything. It's my least favorite part of the process. Also, though, as a, partially as a woman, too, I mean, I'm sure there's a male equivalent to this, but you put on your cute little outfit too, especially when you're a young woman and they expect you to be like cool. And like, this is what young women are like now. They, just <laughs> yeah. they don't even care. They use the word blowjob all the time. <laughs> so you put on your cute little outfit and your makeup and have nice hair, even though you're sweating because you're nervous and it's LA and it's hot. And they, they want it to all look effortless. And it's not. We were wearing the exact same outfit and doing the exact same bit. And there's this canned laughter in the place where you and your producers have all agreed you'll do a little laugh. And it's, it's so artificial. And the mood you're going for is spontaneous and fun. And it's with the more witnesses there, the more appalling it is. And being in it with somebody else was, I don't know, it, it took the edge off. But it also made it even more embarrassing. It's just, it's all gross. <laughs> The NBC thing seems so cruel. People, your pardon. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh no! They know the logline, right? They they knew they had bought a show that had the same logline because they're when they're hearing pitches, they've been told the logline. So it feels particularly cruel that NBC didn't just say, "Oh, you know what? We actually have a high-profile thing that's in similar territory. We don't need to hear this pitch." Instead of we're going to bring in everyone in the whole network to hear it. Um. I guess so. Honestly, I think at the time we were just like, they must love us. They brought in everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a... Do you remember we would carpool together and at the beginning when we were meeting with producers, we uh, rehearsed, we would rehearse in the car before going in because we like we each did half of the pitch. And when we got into our first meeting with the producer, the guy was like, saw you two rehearsing in the car outside. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my god! We were just like we were. We'd go like an hour early, and we would rehearse in our car, and we had our, our little spiel. That was the first thing that guy said. <laughs> How about we never even heard back from Lord and Miller? We're still waiting to yeah, see if they want to still call to say they're into this project. We had a really strong meeting there four years ago, so we're still. <laughs> We had a strong meeting and we're like, I think we nailed it. And then like, they wouldn't, they never even call their agents back. They're like, I'm like, can you, I'm pretty sure they want to do it. They're like, we've left, we've left word five times. Um, and we knew. I'm taking it as a yes. I'm taking it as a yes. So, uh, Lord and Miller produced this. Yeah. Um, sorry, we couldn't take to the finish line guys. Uh, we did our best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the TV land pitch must've, must've gone well. I think they bought it in the room, didn't they? I think so, yeah. And also, though, like, we really got along with people there. Really like Yeah, I did too. I really like them. got it, sort of what we were going for, at least, in, and asked, like, the questions that you hope you'll get asked that you have answers to, because that's what you were asking when you wrote it. And it, it was really, really great. She was Yeah, fun. she was great. Um, and so, Gray, you know, your lead in this, I mean, you guys were saying that you, you know, or Corinne, you were saying that you weren't really seeing yourself, you know, a female character like yourself on television. Right. Did either of you, were either of you sort of seeing yourselves in gray or, you know, talk to me about the decision to, you know, the choice of that lead character and her person. Are you asking us if we're awful people? Like, <laughs> you deserve to be in hell? Is you just don't seem to be, but maybe you are. I don't really know you guys, so... <laughs> 
The first pitch began with a list of all of the horrible things we've done and how we're like gray, remember? And then oh my God. After a while. I forgot about that. <laughs> I think that we did say that like in our first pitch and the person just stared at us and we're like, we gotta, we gotta rework this kid. <laughs> uh, it was about how we hit cars while parking. <laughs> and we're all, they were also like all lies. Remember we just like lied. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even like real things that we had done. We're like, we need to act like we're really terrible. And then, and then I think the executive afterwards was like, do you really uh, hit cars and not leave notes? And we were like, no, 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 no. That was just. And that other exec was like, I get it. I do that all the time. And we were like, no, we were lying. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think, you know, in the way that Noelle was talking about earlier, like the how we are told that we need to have it all, right? Like we're told that we have to have these insane careers and these insane bodies and these perfect houses and also like be really cool around guys that we like or girls that we like. And it's just, you know, I think that I see myself in gray a lot like that where she's like kind of hanging on by a thread while keeping up all these fronts, you know? Um, I, I think I, I relate to that. I can't speak for Noelle, but I will. And she relates to it too. Um, well, I relate to Corinne who relates to it. (laughs) Uh, I think also it's like, um, remember in the end and it wasn't in the version we read because it was in a different draft at the very end, like when we were finishing our last draft, Trump got elected and gray, who's a terrible person in her office had a Trump pen sticker on the wall. Oh yes. And we were like, does that make her too unlikable? And we're like, she kills a man at the beginning of this pilot. Um, (laughs) But it was sort of, I don't want to, like looking back, sort of, I think what was happening in the country, which is the realization that we've all been moving at a million miles a minute, thinking that that is the path to success. And really, it's actually created this massive division, sort of, was also weighed into kind of creating gray less about us and more about what might happen if we kept moving at that pace while only thinking about ourselves and our careers and our appearances. I love that in this script, everything terrible that she's done, we were like the Trump Pence is just one step too far. And we took it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes her irredeemable. We can't, we can't do it. We can't do it, Valdivia. Even though she gave all those guys HPV in the montage. The Trump she voted <laughs> for Hillary. <laughs> And then her assistant is like almost even like a worse person. Kimmy is such a like backstabbing person. The next gray though. Like what's been modeled for guys, what's been modeled for Kimmy other than gray? Everyone's (laughs) asking themselves that question um, (laughs) on the regular. I think daily. Um, So at what point in the process does the good place sort of factor in. I mean, how was the development process of this with TV Land? The, de- the development process was great. Um, we loved them. I'd work with them over and over. I think at one point we were in the middle of writing like our second or third draft of it. And Noelle sent me a text with the deadline article of what the Mike Schur project was. And I just wrote back, oh, fuck. <laughs> and we kind of knew at that point. I mean... There's a world in which 30 Rock and Studio 60 exist, but Noelle's not Tina Fey and I'm not Aaron Sorkin. And so at, at that point, we kind of knew we were dead in the water. We're kind of both Tracy Morgan and Jane Grigowski, so. <laughs> um, it was also a bit like, you know, 
trying to resuscitate like a dead elephant kind of this thing we'd worked on for ages. And then everyone was like, can you make it less like heavenly? I mean, the only thing to do right, is to play against the good place is the same premise. And also both pilots, I think, seemed referenced to defending your life quite a bit, which is, yeah. you know, the seminal afterlife comedy. <laughs> uh, that's canon for afterlife comedy. So as such, they were eerily similar. <laughs> Yeah, we thought we were just ripping off uh, Defending Your Life, but it turns out we were also ripping off The Good Place. One project at a time, one, one piece of really great material at a time. I mean, you're, the lead characters do end up being, you know, there, there's a lot of coincidental and stressing. It's all coincidental, which is, you know, the thing that must have been aggravating. Like, obviously, you had no idea what Mike Schur was writing when you pitched this. I think it's when I should talk about that he was my best friend at the time. And uh, he told me about this idea. And then we had this falling out. And then I made friends with you. Wait, what? He read that draft while he was sleeping. <laughs> I read. Yeah, he never allowed me around his computer or anything because he knew I was a thief. But one day... Uh, no, it was totally coincidental. And, you know, I, I'm happy. I mean, I, I watched The Good Place and I think it's really great. And I'm just happy that it, that a show about purgatory exists. We're pro purgatory. That's really, uh, let's be we honest. We're, we'll be lucky if we get to purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm aiming at this point at 38 years old. I'm like, if I can just get to, if I've just been good enough to get to purgatory, I'm fine. You look around. Lady, <laughs> I think I might be. You may be in it. We may all be in it. Um, did uh, I mean? Did you have thoughts about story engines and sort of where it was going to go? And were were the places you imagined it going similar to where the good place went? Were there coincidences even there? Well, I don't remember our uh, our season one pitch doc. Um, I don't. I, do you remember where we were going? With, I don't remember where we were even going with it. Frankly, I haven't seen The Good Place, so I don't know where they go. Oh, but I remember at the end, didn't she, we, we were, we were going to say that she gets up to heaven, right, at the end? But then she comes back because she's in with Zeta. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Clearly, we had it all mapped out, guys. You guys really missed the, these two geniuses uh, on your television screens. <laughs> but the, the kernel was to explore how impossible it actually is to be good. Like that per episode to say that there's like, don't lie. We've been told on earth, but actually you should lie. This is fair. Someone's feelings. And you should like, it was to take like a tenant of morality and sort of show how like the mistruth in that. Um, that said, Oh, it was, there was an episode where uh, they all had to be, why did they all have to dig a giant hole? I don't know, but in that episode, we ripped off Silence of the Lambs, I remember. Oh, yeah, and she throws Steve in the hole. Yes. Won't let him out until he forgives her for killing him. That's right. That was a good, that episode. Was a good episode. We should, we should write that. <laughs> and we left another episode where there's a massive sort of division in, uh, in heaven or in purgatory because half the people died pre-Game of Thrones and half of them died after Game of Thrones, and they're upset because people, you, this is really four years ago, <laughs> people won't stop talking about it so gray tries to write the red wedding episode from memory and make yes all and they do a play and then and then stevie steven what was his name steven steve yeah steve, steve. Yeah, steve uh it really really hones in on his acting chops and then him and 
gray fight over what the red wedding was actually about and he has a better memory of it but then they do this production and they even had like the little eyeballs for uh king joffrey these are good episodes thank you she realizes she was in without passion and decides to become an actor in purgatory that was where that went <laughs> that is where that went and i think that she also uh, felt very defensive of King Joffrey because she felt like he wasn't as bad as everyone thought he was. Oh, yeah. And she felt like a kind of People could have had <laughs> gold, you guys. Gold on TV land. It is. I mean, you know, someone who's written some really half-assed pit, you know, story doc pitch documents, <laughs> you know, for pilots. Like, these are pretty well thought out episodes. It's... Um, we were young. We know now that you're supposed to phone it in and not fall in love and get committed until later on in the process, but we didn't know that. We were so young. We were 14 years old. I mean, now that we're 24, we just... <laughs> so much now we know. <laughs> And how was it, because neither of you had been in a team before, you've both been writing on your own, like how was that collaboration writing the pilot? Well, we don't speak anymore. Yeah. <laughs> It really ended our friendship, but I felt like it was worth it for, for what happened to this pilot. Our art. Uh, it was pretty easy. I mean, Noelle and I have always gotten along really well. And, you know, I'm a pretty isolated writer, and I think you are too. So it was very much like you take this scene or you take that act, and then we would come together. I think the most annoying part was I don't like to leave my house, and Noelle had to drive all the way to my house at the time in Laurel Canyon. and. Nice. You're like, this took me fucking forever. I, I don't like doing this. He rode on trash cam day. I love <laughs> side mirrors. <laughs> uh, and then we would just sort of rewrite together. And that was fun because I, I always find like once you have something solid to work off of, and Noelle's such a wonderful writer that I would read these scenes that she uh, would send me. I'm like, they're just great and they're good and solid and funny. And she's just a great writer. So it was just nice to not have had to writ, write that scene and then we could just punch it up and, and rewrite it together. And I thought it was a really fun process. I had some trouble with the punch up because I, I've never been in a comedy room where like you do the punch up in the moment on, like we would hook it up to the Apple TV and look at it together. And, you know, I like to like get in my corner and write down my jokes and think of them quietly and then eliminate some and then come back. And uh, that comedy thing of like on, on the nose, having to do it in the moment is not in my skill set. Um, well, I, I also like would scream at her to punch jokes harder. <laughs> Which is, you know, when I get really funny is when I'm being yelled at by a lady. I said, funnier, funnier, Noelle, try again. Just a swing and a miss. All the good habits you learned on Back in the Game. <laughs> <laughs> Grab my ass. <laughs> <laughs> bullying, uh, bullying works. <laughs> Uh, but I also remember one time when we'd assigned these scenes, we would break up the scenes and I, there's one I just couldn't get and one you really couldn't get. And being in a team, when you're doing it alone, like locked in a room, uh, you start to lose a lot of perspective. And I remember that we couldn't get them and we just traded scenes and just like, you know, sometimes looking at something that's half finished when you're not the person who wrote it, the answer is very obvious and we solved it very quickly and each wrote each other's scenes. So that was really, really nice. And we do that now. I mean, sometimes I'll give her in the dark scenes and um, I'll, I'll write, Kevin, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And she, uh, Grin wrote my wedding vows. I did. And then uh, she wrote mine. <laughs> sometimes we just trade now children. <laughs> sometimes that she just hands me her baby and I hand her mine. I'm like, I can't. Let's, let's figure this out separately. <laughs> 
We have uh, it all group. <laughs> <laughs> we have it all figured out, guys. Obviously. So what was it when you saw so Noel, you haven't watched a good place at all. Um uh, I've seen a few, I've seen like two or two. I've seen the I mean the pilot. I was sitting there like getting ready to watch the thing that crushed our dreams. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, did it feel sort of well, this was a good idea. Like we did have, like this could have worked if if we had been the ones that had it. Like the the idea is solid. Was there anything sort of that confirmed, or was it all just like, nah, I'm bummed. We almost got to do that show, and someone else did. Probably the latter. I mean, like I I felt so just like I I would I, I've had so many dead pilots, and I was just like, oh, another one bites the dust, and this one wasn't even totally my fault. <laughs> <laughs> You I do think have, all of the failures are my fault. <laughs> <laughs> you do have something so concrete in this case to point to as the reason why it didn't go, which, as you know, is such a rare thing. Usually it's like, I don't know. It just, they just didn't pick it up. I know. It'd be funny if, like, they just didn't even like it. Like, we would have picked up two purgatory shows. We just didn't like your show. <laughs> That's also, I mean, we're, we're sort of, like, clinging to this, like, driftwood. We're like, it's because of the good place, guys. Like, this show would have been, we, we would just have, like, our our uh, floors lined with Emmys if it wasn't for that fucking good place. <laughs> he wanted to do a purgatory block and that's why they took that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, eh, try again, ladies with mildly cute outfits. <laughs> Bring a man. We want a man writing this lady. Yeah. Is there any way we can find a white man to write this lady? <laughs> um. So how but how was it getting to finally hear it with your friend Kate Walsh reading the lead and, and it was good. Yeah, it was really fun. It was really funny. Like I was like, oh this it made me laugh. Um it was fun. I mean I wish we could have done it as the kids say IRL, but alas, no all that means in real life, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> I know what kids say. <laughs> Um, so I, yeah, I mean, it, it sucked. I mean, I would have liked to, you know, have met you in person, Andrew, and to hug my old pal Noel and to have watched it at, on stage, but you know, it was still, it was really fun. And I, you know, now I'm going to force you to read all of my dead pilots. Send them along. <laughs> Can we workshop our stuff this way? Just by like having your actors read like it Like fancy actors come in and be like, oh, that joke doesn't work. I know we have considered Ben and I just like providing a service. Like, okay, do you guys want to, you know, just you guys want to hear your pilot before you submit it? Like we'll bring in our crew of actors and because you do, as you know, you, you learn everything by actually hearing it read by actors. You can read it out to yourself as many times as you want, but once you have actors read it, it things become so clear what works and what doesn't. They also saved a lot of stuff in that reading that like didn't work or things that I didn't think were funny. They found ways to make moments, out. especially the actors who were playing many characters. I thought really kind yeah. of specificity to them. That was very funny to me. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was our first experiment doing it this way, doing it on zoom. And, you know, it's obviously we'd all love to be in a comedy club doing these with a live audience and getting those laughs and obviously, but, uh, but I was really pleased with how well it worked um doing it this way yeah me too yeah um so thank you for volunteering to be our guinea pigs thank you for choosing our dead pilot <laughs> um well someday we'll get to meet 
IRL, yeah. uh, which I look forward to doing. Um, but thanks, guys, for letting us read it. And it was so, so much fun getting to meet you virtually and talk to you about all this. I know. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so fun. And remember our youth. <laughs> and good luck, Grim, with the pilot. I hope you get to shoot it someday. And Thank well, you. I really hope I hope we get to see Kevin from Five Book himself because it sounds amazing. Thank and you. Whatever the next thing for you is going to be. Um, and thanks, guys. And Thank I guess you. we have to say stay safe because that's what you have to say at the end of every conversation now. Stay safe. Don't be a dick. Wear a mask. Yes. That is Corinne's Instagram right now. It's just that. I, I just, um, I, I will leave on this. I just don't understand. I don't, I don't, it boggles my, it keeps me up at night. I'm like, why won't people just put on a fucking, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't get it. Knowing that you could walk by somebody, not knowing that you are infected and kill the person walking by you. And you're still like, no, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's the, it's the unfortunate lesson we're learning of just how much people suck, just how selfish people are. Everyone's getting stuck in purgatory. No one's, no one's going up to heaven. I know. I know. It's just, it's such a bummer <laughs> and how much America has completely fumbled. This is. And other exports. Yes, they didn't. And, and pretty much everything else. First, first, America doesn't pick up elsewhere. And then this. It's it turns out that gray character, like it used to be fun to write terrible characters. And now it turns out that it's hyper realistic. <laughs> I don't know. Gray definitely wouldn't have worn a mask. Gray is that woman in the Trader Joe's for sure. Gray uh, a bat or whatever that <laughs> That caused Did you see that guy in the Costco? What a fucking psycho. Yeah. Um, all right. You're great when you wear your sunglasses <laughs> on the back of your head. Yes. Wait, we can't leave on this note. <laughs> no, we can. I'm sorry. I'll talk about masks forever and how much people suck forever. Leave us on a better note, you guys. Um, okay. Uh, I'll leave you on this note. My mom watches uh, our child. She's our nanny. And he got mad at her today and he looked at her and he said wipe my butt <laughs> her son is 36 years old <laughs> I, like, I don't understand where did you even think to come up with that i i don't wipe my butt you're raising him right oh, it's God. that it's that year you missed doing those two pilots that's the cause of all of this that really is <laughs> it's true it is true but but my one proud parenting moment was uh i you know like everybody else watched the news on my phone and i was watching some dumb thing that trump was saying and he looked over at my phone he's like mommy that's the bad man don't watch that <laughs> very good so while he says wipe my butt he also is on point with his opinions on bad people <laughs> <laughs> Whereas my baby is super MAGA. Oh no! What happened, Noelle? She's she's from Kentucky. She just wearing that little red hat. Wearing that little red hat. Figured out how to <laughs> figured out how to order it online and wear it. Leave us with a cute baby story, Noelle. She's got the cutest baby in the world. How old's your baby, Noelle? My baby is nine and a half months old. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, do we have a, I mean, all, most of my cute stories are from before I was locked in a house with her for <laughs> months. Uh, but she's, you know, babies when they 
this is when babies uh, discover new sounds, they make them a lot as they're learning. And she's just learned how to make this sound with her lips, like, so now like smacking them. So now she just walks around or crawls around beatboxing all day. And it's really Aww, cool. That's very cute. I wish you guys could all see Noelle's face as she was doing that. For some reason, she went very close to the camera. <laughs> I thought maybe that was where the microphone was. And that was what you would hear. <laughs> I don't know where the microphone is. All right, guys. So good to talk to you. Good to talk, good to, talk to you. Great. Lovely to see your faces, even on these weird little boxes. Yes, yours too. Thanks again for letting us do it. Bye. 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 So that is our show for this month. I want to say thanks again to everyone who's gone out of their way to support the show as a Max Fund member. You are the reason we can continue doing this. And we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Help make it happen by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host, Ben Blacker, uh, and our associate producer, Noah Findling. I really hope that many of you can join us uh, tomorrow, Friday, June 17th for our next Zoom reading. Go to houseseats.live for tickets. It's only 6.50 and it supports Color of Change. I'm telling you it's going to be funny. Uh, we're going to be doing more of these, so follow us on social media to find out when. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilots Society. Okay, everybody, stay safe. Find a way to help someone. Be nice to yourself. Wear a mask. And we'll all get through this. Till next time, I'm Andrew Reich.